You are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church Carlisle, a local church in the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. For more information about the life of our church, visit us at SojournCarlisle.com. James Fields, I serve here as the lead pastor at Soldier and Carlisle. It's indeed a great privilege um, and pleasure to have you join us this morning. If you hear um, a lot of uh, noise in the auditorium, that is good. This is a family Sunday. Um, every fifth Sunday, we uh, invite and we um, love embracing all of our church together, um, especially our babies. So we are thankful uh, for the sound of uh, crying and also the sounds of laughing. Um, it helps us to remind us um, of the fullness that God has granted us to be called the people of God. Amen. 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 Well, if you're visiting us for the first time, we'd love for you to take the opportunity to take one of these cards here and let us know that you're here with us. This is simply a connect card for us to be able to connect with you. On the back, we have ways in which we want to be able to pray for you as well. Um, if you're a member of the church and you call Soldier and Carlisle your home, Um, We would love for you to fill that out as well so that we can pray for you and with you in whatever situations you may find yourself in. Um, Those don't have to be things that we are asking God for. It can also be prayers of celebration, ways that God has moved, prayers that have been answered, or ways that God has um, been very uh, gracious to you and your family in this season. We would love to receive both, um, to both uh, do as Scripture calls us, to weep with those who weep, but also to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. This morning, we'll continue through our sermon series in Ephesians called Mosaic, and I hope that you got uh, the program today because on the front, there's a beautiful display of uh, God's Mosaic community that he is forming here in our church. Um, The beautiful faces, the beautiful families, the diversity that is seen there. Uh, We said earlier that the book of Ephesians, much like a mosaic, Um, is first and foremost a book of encouragement. Remember, a mosaic is a picture or pattern produced by arranging together small colored pieces of hard material such as stone, tile, or glass to form an image. We know that Paul wrote this book while in prison, and unlike his other writings, he did not write this letter to counteract heresy or to confront any specific problem of sin. But rather, Paul takes the time to describe the nature and experience of the church, and he challenges us as believers to function as the living body of Christ while living on earth. And we're going to see that in very specific ways as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 this morning. Um, Before we go any further... Um, I want to pray, but before I pray, I want to be able to just rehash with us and recount, because I know that we have done Church on the Lawn, um, and Church on the Lawn, while it is a wonderful experience, it also can be kind of distracting, uh, not just for the children or anything like that, but because of uh, motorized vehicles who are going by, uh, because of accidents that are happening and water that is spilling and diapers that need to be changed, so on and so forth. So what I want to do is just remind us of where we are right now. So in Ephesians chapter 1, so far we've witnessed this. We've witnessed that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. We see that in Ephesians 1.3. We see that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
We've seen that he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. We've seen that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We have seen that in him we also have received an inheritance, that actually we are the inheritance of Christ. We see also that we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit that was seen in verse 13 of chapter 1. We've also learned a few things. In Ephesians chapter 2, we've learned that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. But we learned in verse 4, but God, right? Not the B-U-T-T, right? Not, not that one. I know a lot of kids got to chuckle at that outside. We're not talking about that but, but we're talking about the conjunction but, B-U-T, right? B-U-T, God, who is rich in mercy because of, his, uh, because of his great love that he's had for us, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in trespasses. And Paul is very, very intentional to remind us that you are saved by grace. Amen? Verse 6, we also see that um, we were raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavens. Um, Ephesians 2, 6. Last week, Pastor Nick did a great job of looking at Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, where at the end of that prayer, Paul busts out into a spontaneous praise, and he says these words at the very end of that prayer. He says, Now unto him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Today, this morning, Paul gently transitions us from the majesty of God's power to the sufficiency of God's provision by exhorting this church at Ephesus to live in a way that fulfills the purpose for which they have been called. And Paul does this by expounding upon two themes that we'll look at today. Verses 1 through 6, save to walk in unity. And then verses 7 through 16, gifted to operate in diversity. Will you take the time with me and bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Father God, we do thank you that you've given us the opportunity to be um, not conformed to uniformity, but to, to embrace the unity that your son's uh, shed blood has caused and created for us in every way. It's not something that we have to work for. It's something that's already accomplished. But Father, I do ask. Pray that you would give us the grace to see how to walk in unity because of the precious blood spilled by Jesus. Help us to be a church that is unified under the banner and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to be a church, Lord, that stands on the truthfulness and the sturdiness of the foundation of your word. And help us to be a church that will submit to the very spirit of Christ that raised him from the dead and empowers us to live godly lives in an ungodly world. Give us your grace as you always do. I pray, Father, that you also would hide me behind your cross. Take the little I have, make much of it, glorify yourself as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I read this tweet on uh, October 19th, and I've been chewing on it ever since. It's a tweet from Pastor uh, Rich uh, Vildas, uh, who is a pastor of New Life Fellowship in Queens, New York, and it simply reads as follows. It says this, what if at the end of history, the question God asks us is not whether we abstain from sin, but what if the question is, did you enter into the joy that was available to you? 
did you enter into the joy that was available to you? And as I pondered this question, I, in my mind, I began to think, what does it mean to enter into the joy that's been made available to me? Began to ponder, what would my look, life look like practically if I would embrace this aspect of entering into the joy that is available to me? I also thought, man, what joys have I intentionally or unintentionally neglected in my life? I think it's a good question for all of us to consider. So let me ask you, are you entering into the joy that is being made available, that has been made available to you because of Christ's shed blood? What joy are you forsaking in your life? What joys are you neglecting in your life? What could entering into the joy of the Lord look like for you and your family? See, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, Paul takes the time to gently give specific instructions on what entering into the joy that's been made available to us as believer, believers looks like practically. Look with me at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, as we look into this section called Save to Walk in Unity. Paul says it this way. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Notice the irony of this passage in this verse. Paul is intentionally intentional to remind us of the amazing power of God while he still finds himself in prison, serving time under Roman surveillance as a prisoner in the Lord. I think it's a good reminder for us that we say often in our church, but I think it's a good reminder from Verse 1 is, listen, don't let your circumstances define or determine the character of God. Don't let your circumstances determine the character of God. Here is Paul, a man who was wrongfully in prison, a man who is behind bars not for stealing or murder or for vandalism or terrorism. He is in the prison because he's been faithful to Jesus. And here in this prison cell, Paul reminds us that he is a prisoner, but not just a prisoner. He's a prisoner in the Lord. It's a prisoner who is subjected to the commands and the authority of his king. Notice with me the command of Paul here in verse 1. Paul's general appeal to all believers, not just the church of Ephesus, but even to us today is here. It's found right here. Walk worthy of the calling you have received. This is the command. Very simple, very explicit. Walk worthy of the calling you have received. Let's look at this phrase just for a moment as a church. The word walk here is a common expression used for living one's life. So when Paul talks about walking, he's not just talking about strolling in Iroquois Park or Cherokee Park or some other beautiful park here in Louisville. 
What Paul is talking about is looking and living your life according to God's word. Not only tells us to walk, but he uses this word worthy. The term worthy here carries the notion of weighing the same ass. It's a good reminder that God's word insists that people's attitudes and actions align up with their their profession, their professed faith in him, excuse me. That God's word insists that people's attitudes and actions align up with their professed faith in him. You know, in the Greco-Roman world, goods were often used on a weighted scale. And the goods that were being purchased were placed on a scale like the one you see behind me. The the goods were used to place on a scale to balance the weight and to make sure that no one was selling anything less than a full measure of the agreed-upon weight. Anything purchased less than agreed-upon weight would be deemed unworthy. So Paul is saying, live your life in a way that matches up, that, that is equal to and synonymous with God's word. Live your life in a way that reflects not your goodness or your greatness. Live a life that reflects the goodness and greatness of your king. Live a life that is fully consecrated and submitted to Jesus as being the king of your life and of this world. He not just talk, he talks not just about walking, he not, talks not just about this aspect of worth, but notice the other word that he used here, calling. Walk worthy of the calling you have received. This word calling refers not to a specialized or vocational calling, but it's the general calling of a person to be a Christian. You know, a while back when we were on Church on the Lawn, we asked this question that some of us think that the church is too big for us. Excuse me, that we're too big for the church. <laughs> and we get frustrated with God's church and just, um, we, we have a prideful attitude towards God's church. We have all of the solutions for what God's church should be doing. Excuse me, we know all of the problems that God's, well, how God's church should operate, but we don't want to provide any of the solutions, amen? But the solution maybe is not found in strategy. The solution is actually found in submission. It's found in submitting ourselves to the beauty and the majesty of what Jesus shed his precious blood on the cross for, which is the Mosaic, the church of the one true living God. Maybe the problem isn't that we're too big for the church. Maybe the problem is that the church is too big for us. And that just like little kids who are playing in oversized clothes, the only solution for a little kid who's playing in adult-sized clothes is to grow into the clothes. The clothes ain't going to change. You can't take a a 44-suit vest and and tailor it to a (laughs) six-year-old. What you do is you encourage that six-year-old to have patience and continue to grow because one day you'll be able to fit this. It's not today, but as you can continue to walk, as you continue to grow, as you continue to submit, one day you're going to wake up and you're going to be able to fit something that you one day 10 years ago could not fit by the grace of God. Amen? 
So what is Paul essentially saying here? Paul is essentially saying this, that what we believe must manifest itself in the way we live our lives. It's plain and simple, that what we believe must manifest itself in the way we live our lives. So what did this look like practically? How do I take this home with me? (laughs) How does this apply to my broken marriage? How do I apply this to my children who are being disobedient? How do I apply this to a workplace that is fractured and always contentious? How do I apply this word to my life? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because verses two through three provides the answer for us. Look with me in Ephesians chapter four, verses two through three. Paul gives us some specific instructions. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Notice with me that we live worthy lives. We lived balanced lives, if you will, by simply walking in the spirit, by submitting ourselves to the spirit of Christ and to the authority of God's word. This is how we learn to live worthy lives, balanced lives before God and before this broken world. You know, earlier this week, we lost a dear brother in the Lord, a faithful man, one of the world's most renowned theologians, Mr. Professor Dr. Gordon Fee. And in Christianity Today, they wrote an article earlier this week about his life. And I love what uh, a portion that was in that article, and I want to share that with you. It says this, uh, if you had asked Paul to determine what a Christian is, Fee once told Christianity Today, he would not have said a Christian is a person who believes X and Y doctrines about Christ. But catch this, listen to this, but a Christian is a person who walks in the Spirit and who knows Christ. Who walks in the Spirit and who knows his Savior, Jesus Christ. Hence, Paul carefully lists four virtues for the Christians to pursue, for us to pursue. So listen, I'm I'm, going to try to get practical here with y'all, all right? So if you're taking notes, this is the time you should take out that pen Tell tell that person to stop texting you on the phone. This is the time you want to do that. So first he says this, with all humility. Humility is this. It's a genuine sense of lowliness that accompanies a true estimate of oneself. It's a good reminder for us that humility was disregarded and regarded as distasteful by the pagan world of Paul's day. Instead, pride was highly, pride was more highly prized than humility. So listen, for this church, for us to hear the words of humility, it's like, oh yeah, that's natural, right? Yeah, that's good. We want to walk humbly before God. But listen, in Paul's day, this word humility would have almost had a connotation or had a synonymous feeling of being lower than or unimportant. There are a couple of things that Paul wants us to 
look at. And in order to understand what Paul wants us to look at, we first also have to understand what he doesn't want us to look at. I think in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it, um, this, the author of the Apostle John writes these words. He says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's life, or the pride in one's possession, or the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And as I studied this passage and I looked at these virtues that Paul had, I, I was amazed to see the, not just the, what, what was explained here, but also the contrariness to what the world has to offer. We see this best here at this point of humility that Paul calls us to humility. And the opposite of humility is pride. And we see that in 1 John 2.16, that the pride in one's possession or the pride of life, this is what it means. It basically means this, I know what's best. I know what's best. No one can tell me. No one can show me. No one can teach me anything because I know what's best. I know what's best for me and I know what's best for you. I know what's best for the economy. I know what's best. And this is a spirit of the age that is living amongst us. And Paul is not calling us towards a pride of life. He's calling us to humility. Notice with me the difference between pride and humility. Pride always emphasizes itself in power and authority. Humility always focuses itself on position. Pride focuses itself on the privileges that I got to keep what's mine. I got to protect myself. But humility focuses on the promises of our God and King found in the Word of God. Pride is always trying to diagnose the prognosis, right? What, what is making this problem wrong while humility focuses on the process? That although I am not yet what God intends me to be, be day by day, I will grow. And I will submit to the authority of God's word to make me become what I am not, what I am not right now. Pride always focuses on the problem, but humility focuses on the person. The person is not me. The person is not you. The person is the person that every person needs to look to. That Philippians says that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. That person is none other than King Jesus himself. Looking to him submitting to him, loving him, knowing Jesus is the essence of what it means to walk in humility. Not only does he tell us to be humble, he also tells us to be gentle. And to be gentle is opposite of, and if pride of life is the opposite of humility, the lust of the flesh is the opposite of gentleness. And here's what the lust of the flesh says in 1 John 2, 16. The lust of the flesh says this, I want more than what God has given to me. It centers itself on greed. It centers itself on greed and obtaining more than what God has given. This word gentleness simply means this. It means to be considerate of others and not seeking to dominate them. It is loving submission to God and to others. You see, the opposite of gentleness is rudeness, is violence, is severity, and is access. 
Gentleness is akin to another word that we find in scriptures called meekness. And this word meekness simply means this. It means strength under control. I was trying to find an image of, to help us understand what that is. I'm not always great with my imagery because I'm not really good with technology. But this is what I came up with. It's a picture of strength under control. It's okay to say, aw, it's kind of cute, I guess. St. Bernard, huge dog, right? Having these little babies lay on him, right? Being a protector, knowing how to use his weight, right? Knowing that you are a big, massive being, right? That you are a son and daughter of God, but not using that to dominate others, to condemn others, to suppress others, not using your privileges and the giftedness that God has given you to make others feel less than you. Gentleness, meekness, strength under control is what God calls us to. Notice with me that only the Holy Spirit produces this work of grace in the life of the believer. Listen to me, only the Holy Spirit. And the way I know that is because of Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23, where it simply says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it says the law is not against such things. I love this last little bit that the law is not against such things because in a, in a way, Paul is saying, Who in the world would not want you to exhibit these qualities? (laughs) There's never going to be a law that says, hey, you, don't love other people. Don't be joyful. Don't be peaceful. Don't be good. Don't be faithful. Right? There's no law that's going to tell you not to do these things. These laws and these aspects and these qualities are not just qualities that we look to uphold within the world. It's qualities that ensue from knowing Jesus and walking with him. It's qualities that are produced in our life as we continually submit to the work of the Spirit in our lives. It's qualities that come out of us naturally as we read God's Word and as we pray and we fellowship together and as we, as we see here in a little bit, maintain the unity that is established by the bond of peace. So if the pride of life is the opposite of humility and the lust of the flesh is the opposite of gentleness... The lust of the eye is the opposite of patience and forbearance. The, the lust of the eye says this, I want, uh, I want what God has given to someone else. The lust of the eye. The pride of life says, I know what's best. The lust of the flesh says, I want more than what God has given me. But the lust of the eye is, I want what God has given, uh, has given to someone else. It's always looking, always envious, always jealous of what someone else has. And the solution to this is not going out and getting and emptying your bank account to live like the Joneses next door. And excuse me if we have any Joneses in the room. I'm not talking about you. I don't know. I don't think we have any Joneses. I hope not. But if we do, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to pick on you. I'll, fields. You don't want to be like the Fields Fieldses is. I'll use my own name. You know, this is the problem with the world that we live in today, this technological world, because at any instance, you're always reminded of what you don't have. You're always reminded of what someone else has and what they're doing, how they decorate their black splash on their kitchen, 
the new floors that they put in, the clothes that they got, the shoes that they're wearing, every single day you are inundated. You are overwhelmed with what everyone else has except for you. What that does is it creates something in us called the lust of the eye, where we are always craving what someone else has and never learning how to be thankful for the gifts that God has given to us. Amen? So what's the answer to this? (laughs) The answer is Jesus, but the answer that we see this working in our lives is what he talks about in these verses, peace and patience. He says that with all humility and gentleness, with patience, uh, patience is the quality of endurance and steadfastness in the presence of disturbing circumstances. Patience is learning to restrain the desire to seek revenge or to escape when others annoy us. The opposite of patience is this, it's impatience. It is being quick to be angry. It's insulting others. He not only calls us to patience, but he also calls us to this thing called forbearance. In the actual scripture, it says bearing with one another in love, but in the Greek, you can summarize this word into being for a forbearance. It's the ability to put up with the attitudes, manners, and flaw faults of others. It is being tolerant of others despite their weaknesses, faults, and failures. The opposite of forbearance is a lack of patience that leads you to being exasperated with other, with other, with uh, other common human weaknesses, imperfections, and inconsistencies. Have you ever looked at somebody and just said, man, I'm done with you? (laughs) I'm just done. I'm just done with you. Listen, what you want to pray into when you want to ask God is to give you forbearance. The ability to put up with people, yes, who are maybe too much or who may be annoying or who always have faults. Learning to be tolerant of others despite their weaknesses, despite their frailties, despite their failures. Pray and ask God for forbearance in your life to give me the ability. You know, during a counseling session, um, I counsel, often counsel couples to be able to uh, go to God about their spouses and, and the different things that they're going through. And uh, recently, I got reminded, um, about two months ago, I got reminded about um, a conversation I had that one person told me, she said, she said this, she said, I got uh, convicted by God uh, by not only talking to God about my frustrations, but I started to pray to God to give grace to my spouse. Because at a counseling session, I always remind them, hey, listen, if you have frustrations with your spouse, go to God about that. Talk to God about that. And this person finally got to a place where they said, you know what? I got convicted. I shouldn't just go to God about the faults. I need to go to God for also grace. To not just complain about my spouse to God, but to ask God to give my spouse the grace to do maybe the things that they struggle with in their life, to be better in their weaknesses, and for me to have forbearance, to be patient with them despite their weakness. It's the essence and means of what it means of grace. It means that we are learning to be tolerant of others despite their weaknesses and despite their frailties. 
So what's the benefit of walking in humility before God and others? Look with me in verse 3. Making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is the basis of our unity. This word, this term to keep derives from the Greek word that literally means speed or continual effort. One commentary puts it this way. It says, keeping the unity that God's spirit has provided in the church is not a casual part-time matter. We are not to take a wait-and-see approach about church harmony, but we are to be ready and eager to do all that we can to nurture it. To nurture it. It's a good reminder for us that peace is a state of reconciliation that manifests from the shed blood of Christ, which acts as a bond to unite believers in Christ. Believers do not create unity. Rather, we're just simply to preserve the unity that has already been established in love. I love this because Paul is not telling you to go out and figure out a way to create unity and to be peaceful. He's saying, listen, Jesus has done the work. His blood has has covered every transgression and sin that is against you. Now just maintain it. And isn't this just like our God? In the very beginning of Genesis, God shared this similar philosophy of creating all things, but calling mankind to be stewards, to be heralds, if you will of the things that he has created. God has not called us to create something on our own because we can't do that apart from him. What he's called us to do is to maintain what he has already created. To maintain the unity of the spirit. To keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. We said it earlier, but I think it's apropos to share it here, that reconciliation cannot happen between two equal parties, right? We've been talking about that through Philemon and even a little bit through this book of Ephesians, right? That if you are unequal, regardless if you are high or the other person is low or you are high and the other person, whatever it may look like, that reconciliation cannot happen between two people or two parties who are unequal, And what Paul is calling us here is reminding us is that the blood has made us equal. It has established peace. Even if you don't like that person, even if you think they're the most annoying person in the world, listen, they are your brother and sister in Christ. Even if you don't get along with them, you got a rich history with them, they are your brother and sister in Christ. And it's not by anything that you could have done. It's by the precious blood of Christ that we are made equal and that we can find peace and reconciliation with one another. Our unity was created by the Spirit. He creates it, and we're charged to keep or maintain it. Unity among believers results from our common salvation, that we are looking to the same Savior, King Jesus, for our salvation and for our righteousness. So why should we seek to maintain this unity and peace in our relationship with God and others? Well, look with me in verses 4 through 6. It says it this way. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each, of, each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Did you notice the mention of the Trinity in the first three verses? Verse 4 talks about there is one body and one spirit. Verse 5 talks about um, just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to um, to our call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then in verse 6, we have this term of one God and Father of all. Paul quickly helps us to see that the basis of our unity and the basis of our peace is found in our triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in in these verses, Paul mentions seven one statements, if you will. He starts at verse 4 saying about one body. This refers to the church. He talks about one spirit. Of course, this refers to the Holy Spirit. He talks about one hope. This refers to the reality of heaven, our eternal presence with God. Talks about one Lord, refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Talks about one faith. This refers to the commitment to Christian truth. Talks about one baptism. This refers to the baptism of all believers into the body. Because we are Baptists, we proclaim and rightly that it's by immersion. And then one God and Father of all refers to God's sovereign rule over the church. But notice with me, not only is God's church unified, it is also diverse. Look with me in verses 7 through 10 as we look at the second half of this sermon, gifted to operate in diversity. He says this, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive and he gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended means, except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth. The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. Now, there's a couple of questions in here that we have to talk through just a little bit because it is not clear in what Paul is saying. What does Paul mean when he says, now grace was given to each of you or each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift? Grace here is not saving grace, but God's grace as expressed in granting gifts to his children. And what Paul means when he talks about that Christ descended to the lower parts of the earth, although there is great debate, the reference to the lower earthly regions usually has three distinct yet different interpretations. One, it means that Jesus came down to earth. The second interpretation is that Jesus went down into the grave. And then the third interpretation is that Jesus didn't just come to earth, didn't just come to grave. Jesus actually went into hell. They get that from 1 Peter. Um, That mentions that that in 1 Peter. So what is happening here? Paul here, what is happening is this. Paul is directly quoting and applying Psalm 68, 18 to Christ's ascension. And he's applying that these spiritual gifts, that the spiritual gifts that he gives to us as the people of God, that the spiritual gifts are like the rewards that a victorious general distributes to his supporters who may not have even been present at the battle. What what they talk about in history is the spoils of victory. That when a king goes out to war or when a king is conquering a land, he not just conquers the land, he also conquers the people and he conquers the goods. And what Paul is mentioning here, he's applying that because Jesus has come from heaven to earth, defeated death through his death on the cross, and now has gone back up to heaven to live eternally and be there eternally with his father, 
He's equating those things to Psalm 68, which talks about the king's victory. Notice with me that victory implies a a battle. And notice with me, there has never been a moment when Jesus has not been victorious. Jesus has been victorious from the very beginning being the word made flesh that John talks about in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus was victorious there. And then Jesus came through the womb of a woman named Mary, who never knew a man, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, although he was not a sinner himself, placed in a borrowed tomb, rose on the third day. Jesus has been victorious, not just in heaven from the very beginning, but he's also been victorious on this earth. And then now Jesus at Acts, he ascends to the Father to be with him and take his seat at the right hand of the Father forevermore. Jesus is victorious now as our extended king. And what Paul is wanting us to be reminded of is the sufficiency and the proficiency of our Savior that in all aspects of his life, Jesus has never known defeat. He is victorious. And because of that, and because of his victory, he's now able to give us gifts. He's able to equip us to give us his spirit to unify and to maintain the unity that he's provided through the spirit for the church. So what are some of these gifts that Jesus gives to the church? Look with me in verses 11 through 16 as we come to our close. And he says, and he himself gave some to be apostles and prophets, evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until all reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a, measure, a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of doctrine by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. For him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Notice with me that Jesus not only gives spiritual gifts, he also provides his church with gifted men. Gifted men that have been equipped for leadership in the church. He talks about some of those, the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists and the preachers and the teachers. Apostles are those who have been sent by God himself, by Christ himself. They were essential for the building up and the foundation of God's church, especially in the first century. Prophets are those who speak on God's behalf. They are both those who um, tell what God wants to hear now, but also those who can tell uh, about things that are yet to happen in the future. Evangelists are those gifted uniquely to present the gospel and call sinners to repentance and faith in the Savior. Then we have this term, pastors and teachers. I believe that this is a one-word connotation here. It's not talking about two different roles or two different positions. The pastors are to provide oversight, comfort, and guidance as the church shepherd, but the teachers are to instruct and apply God's word to the life of the church. Teachers are to be concerned with passing on the church's revealed teachings. 
It's a good reminder for us all, including myself, even as a pastor of this church, that no believer has all the gifts, yet no believer is, is without a gift. That if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been gifted by him in the spirit to be able to use those gifts for his glory and the edifying of his church. So what is the purpose of Jesus giving gifts to the church? Look with me in verses 12 through 13. He says this quite simply, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. You know, yesterday we had our fall festival, and it was an amazing event. Yesterday, uh, Laura Davis and BJ and uh, the crew that they had, um, man, it was such a wonderful experience. And you know, one of, the, one of the greatest joys as your pastor, when I go to those events and someone asks me a question, is when I say, I don't know. <laughs> someone came to me and said, hey, is somebody in the hallway looking at, I said, I don't know. Go ask Laura, I don't know. Hey, where do you find the prayer booth? I don't know. I mean, ask, ask BJ. I, I don't know. Now, listen to me. I'm not trying to be an ignorant pastor, but what I'm saying to you is that my job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And if you come to me every single time, I have all the answers and all the direction, and I'm telling you everything about everything, I'm not doing my job as a pastor. My job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. So that your gifts, your abilities are shown and seen to be used for the glorification of God in this church. If I have all the answers, if I'm the, if the buck ends with me all the time, listen, I'm going to give you my, I'm going to say like, guys, I'm out. I can't, I can't do that. I just can't do, that's not how God has created me. And that's not what the scriptures calls us to. Scripture calls us to equip the saints, to equip you guys for the work of the ministry. And I'm not ashamed to say I don't know. I'm proud to say I don't know. Because I don't need to know everything. I don't. And that's okay. We serve a God who knows everything. And we serve a God who's given us people to, do, to fulfill the vision that he's given us uh, for this community and for this church and this neighborhood. And that's a beautiful thing. Amen? Amen. Ultimate goal is threefold here, equipping the saints for the ministry, to build up the body of Christ, to reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son, and to grow into maturity with the stature that's measured by Christ's fullness. If you don't know, this is actually where our vision statement comes from. Every aspect of this is what we're trying to inculcate into the life of this church. These are not just words that we hear or talk about. These are words that we talk about in the life of our church, but we put them differently. We talk about maturity, multi-ethnicity, and missionality. Multi-ethnicity is seen in the fact that God has given different uh, offices to the church, apostles and prophets and uh, evangelists and pastors and teachers. We want to be able to accentuate the beauty of diversity and the, beautiness, uh, the beauty of giftedness in the life of this church. That's where we get multi-ethnicity from. Missionality is this. We want to equip you for the work of ministry. We want to find, listen, I say this all the time, and maybe you haven't heard me say this publicly because me and Pastor Nick always talk about it privately, but let me say it publicly. I'm not just interested in getting people in this church. I want you to be in this church in the right place where you can find joy and fulfillment as you serve in this church. It's not, that, it's not just about numbers. It's not just about making our church big. And listen, if you have not, or if you're finding difficulty in finding a role that you can serve in this church, come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Nick. That's what we're here for. 
We want you to be placed in the place where you get to, you have joy in the work that you do. That you're placed in the place where you have been gifted in. That is the beauty of the church. And then lastly, but not least, we want to grow into maturity. That's measured by the stature by Christ's full, not by Pastor Jane's fullness. My fullness is lacking. I'm still in development, y'all. Amen. But by Christ's fullness is what we want to do. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for this day. and We thank you for giving us unity in the spirit. Thank you, God, that you have called us to unity in the spirit and to diversity in the body. We're saved to walk in unity. We're gifted to operate in diversity. Help us to walk well in both of these realities as your church. Jesus, be with us even now as we go from a transition of being outside a church on the lawn to now being here in this church building. I pray that you would Keep us on mission, God. You will stir within us a fire, not just to be a part of this church, but to be placed in the right places, the right positions that you have would desire for us to be in to serve you and to serve your church and to advance your kingdom. Pray that you would help us, Lord, in this way to make room for every gift that is present in this room in the life of our church. Jesus, I thank you that your blood gives us peace, that because of the shed blood on the cross of Calvary, we have peace with God and we have peace with one another. Help us to walk in that peace with all humility, with all gentleness, with all patience and with all forbearance. Help us, Lord, to make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. Last but definitely not least, I pray for those who don't know you, Father, under the sound of my voice. I pray especially for those who think they know you, but they really don't. Pray that you would convict their heart, that you would capture them by your grace, and you would let them know that you love them and you see them. Father, help us not to play church. Help us not to play games. Help us put our hand to the plow to honor and glorify you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields Jr., lead pastor of Soldier and Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a multi-ethnic church that is firmly rooted in the diverse community of South Louisville. We are seeking to equip our members for gospel engagement and practical, effective ministry to the poor, the marginalized, and disenfranchised here in the south end of Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit our website or email us at info at soldierandcarlisle.com. God bless.